With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ora Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. During the Cold War, Soviet spies made the Americas their home to better infiltrate the United States. Today, in the shadow of the war in Ukraine, history is repeating itself. Russia's spies are increasingly turning up across Latin America. What can the West do to stop them? And Colombian artist Fernando Botero's work is unmistakable. From reworked old masters to horses to the drug lord Pablo Escobar, they're all just plump. Our obituaries editor reflects on a life lived while never deviating from a signature style. But first... From the first wobbles of Evergrande, an enormous Chinese property developer, we've been telling you what's going wrong. Things were going south so fast last March that trading in its shares was suspended. They went back on the market just a month ago. But then yesterday... Trading in shares of China Evergrande Group was suspended on Hong Kong Stock Exchange Thursday amid growing fears for its survival. The, move came the company's chief executive, it emerged, has been under police scrutiny. Really quite an extraordinary development here, firmly indicating that we have moved from Evergrande being a debt restructuring story into increasingly a criminal story, potentially. So Hui Kaiyan, the founder of Evergrande, now under residential surveillance. Now, that's Evergrande's trials are partly because of regulatory changes in China's giant housing market, changes that in turn reflect President Xi Jinping's philosophy that the market shouldn't be handed over to speculators. But they're also partly because potential Chinese buyers are spooked and not putting their money into property. It's probably the biggest drag on China's struggling economy. The government has boldly handled past downturns, but this time no one seems to be yanking the policy levers, and again Mr. Xi's influence is evident. One problem facing China's economy is a problem that's facing everybody else, which is global economic weakness, which has hit China's exports. Simon Cox is the China economics editor for The Economist. But more urgently, there's a hesitation on the part of consumers, both to spend on durable consumer goods, fridges, home appliances, but also buying property itself. Now, in the past, the government has always been quick to respond to slowdowns of this kind through various stimulus efforts. But now the same hesitation we see on the part of China's consumers is also evident on the part of China's government. It's been somewhat timid in its response to this slowdown. How do you mean? In in what way is it being timid? Well, in most places, the first responder to an economic slowdown is the central bank. They cut interest rates. And elsewhere in the world, we've got used to activist central banks who do whatever it takes to prop up the economy 
even if that entails quite dramatic measures. In China, the central bank did cut interest rates back in June and again in August, but by a tiny amount, just 0.1 percentage points for the seven-day rate. Now we can ask you, why was it so cautious? And there are a number of reasons, including the political constraints that China's central bank operates under. And what constraints are they? Well, China's central bank worries that deep cuts in interest rates will erode faith in the currency, that it might also squeeze the banking system. But on top of that, there's an ingrained caution on the part of China's central bankers. They don't have the autonomy and political independence that central banks elsewhere enjoy. You can't do anything too dramatic that's going to surprise the leadership, in particular China's president and party leader Xi Jinping. So if the usual person you might expect to start pulling levers isn't really empowered to do so, who can? So traditionally, responsibility for the economy actually falls to the number two official in China, the Prime Minister Li Qiang. And in the past, Prime Ministers have been powerful, they've been quite adventurous, they've had a bit of clout and gumption, and they've used that to pull the economy out of the fire. I think back to the Asian financial crisis in 1998, and the Prime Minister at the time, Zhu Rongji, was a very forceful and charismatic figure, and that helped lift everyone's spirits, which can be self-fulfilling in a crisis. If people feel confident, they're more likely to spend, and that can keep the economy stable. Li Chang is no Zhurongji. He's perfectly well-informed, reasonably capable, fairly business-friendly prime minister, but he's weak. In fact, some commentators say he's the weakest prime minister in the history of the People's Republic. He owes his position entirely to Mr. Xi. He himself has said that he and the, the cabinet are there just to implement the ideas that come from the party. It's also true that in China nowadays, growth and protecting prosperity is not the only goal that matters. Safeguarding security now has equal, if not greater, status. And so we've seen mixed messages from China's government. They'll spend a bit of time trying to reassure entrepreneurs, reassure foreign investors, and at the same time, there'll be some uh, conspicuous crackdown, for example, on Western due diligence firms that puts everybody off. So Li Chang, unfortunately, is not the kind of figure China needs right now to revive confidence. And so clearly, as you say, confidence is low in the wider economy. Where is that being seen the most? So the chief cause for concern right now is the property market. Obviously, buying property is a major commitment. You don't do it if you're feeling in the least bit cautious. And property has really been in a slump since the middle of 2021, when some tight regulatory limits on property developers really began to bite. This was part of quite a fierce campaign against property speculation and against overborrowing by property developers. Uh, you may remember it pushed an enormous property developer called Evergrande into default and a bunch of other property developers followed. Now, on the one hand, this campaign against speculation, this campaign against overborrowing had a sound economic rationale. But it was carried out not as a kind of technocratic, macro-prudential exercise. It was carried out as something more of a, a political campaign. So now that that campaign has succeeded almost too well, property speculation has been quashed, sales have collapsed, developers are now struggling to finance themselves. It could really do with a bit of recalibrating. But of course, if you've mounted such a vociferous campaign with a political overlay, it's hard to reverse course without things looking a bit embarrassing. But again, the question of where the stimulus is going to come from if it's not going to come from a bold, independent central bank. 
So in the past, China's local governments have actually led the way with stimulus. But unfortunately, that model has been tried and it's sort of been taken to its exhausted limit. Local governments have accumulated quite a lot of debt. So right now, I don't think the central government's too interested in re-empowering local governments to go on another big spending spree. So if local governments aren't the answer, then what can the central government do? So the central government has more financial leeway, it has a stronger balance sheet, lower borrowing costs. And you could imagine it doing traditional things like investing in public infrastructure. Also, consumer handouts. We have seen in Hong Kong, where I live, for example, the government giving out quite generous consumption vouchers. And you could imagine something similar happening in mainland China. Many economists have proposed it. But we haven't seen any action towards that. And so some people have speculated that it somewhat goes against the personal philosophy of Xi Jinping, who often talks about the dangers of welfareism. Also, it's true that I think in China, in mainland China, there's a view that consumption is wasted spending, that if you're going to spend public money, you should at least have some kind of asset created or cut taxes on entrepreneurs, which at least you might give you some boost to entrepreneurial vigor. Okay, so if we take out the option then of handouts per se, what could the government be doing or what is it doing? We've seen a faster issuance of government bonds. We've seen them talking a lot about efforts to renovate what are called urban villages. These are formerly rural settlements that have been swallowed up by China's megacities as they've expanded. And we've also seen the economy itself beginning to bottom out. For example, indicators in August were a bit better than expected. So it may be that both the government and consumers will muddle through this slowdown. This is also around the time that, by tradition, China's Communist Party would hold a big twice-a-decade meeting on the economy, where in the past, leaders have spelt out their vision for the economy, spelt out their economic philosophy. And if she wanted to, he could take the opportunity to hold another meeting of that kind to spell out that he is, in fact, in favour of entrepreneurialism, he's in favour of further economic reform, and all of that might help to boost what is quite depressed economic sentiment. Simon, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. Over the past year and a half, several suspected Russian spies have been detained in Europe. And many of these agents have more than just the Kremlin in common. 
is by posing as a Brazilian citizen was trying to get access into the International Criminal Court. He may also be a spy. This man with a Brazilian passport arrested this week in Norway. Some were citizens of a Latin American country, while others had degrees from a Canadian university. During the Cold War, Russian spies found the Americas a particularly good place to build up a false identity. The recent arrests show it may still be. There has been one Russian spy caught after the other. Shashank Joshi is our defence editor. In the Netherlands, in Sweden, in Norway, in Poland, and so many of them have a connection to the Americas, either to Canada or South and Central America. So Shashank, how many spies are we talking about here? We don't know exactly how many illegals the Russians have. These are obviously very secretive. According to my understanding from reporting I did last year, the SVR, which is Russia's foreign intelligence agency, is thought to have somewhere between 50 to 100 deployed illegals. And the GRU, which is Russia's military intelligence agency, only has between 10 and 20. So we're talking pretty scarce and precious assets. And I can think of at least six suspected Russian illegals who've been discovered in Europe since last year. I think the most interesting case is the one caught in April 2022. He was Victor Muller Ferreira. He was a guy with a Brazilian passport. He turned up in The Hague for an internship at the International Criminal Court. And it turns out he is actually Sergei Vladimirovich Cherkasov. He is a, a GRU illegal who had spent 10 years building up his identity in Brazil then there was the case of a Brazilian academic in Norway who had graduated from a Canadian university. He turned out to be another Russian intelligence officer. He was Mikhail Mikushin. The list goes on and on. There was a, an Argentine couple in Slovenia who were also Russian spies. And all of these were illegals, which basically means they're intelligence officers working under a false identity, often under a false nationality, rather than spies working under diplomatic cover in an embassy, uh, who are often pretty well known to local security services. The illegals are much harder to trace. And why are all these Russian spies turning up under Latin American identities in particular? The Russians and the Soviet Union before them have always viewed the Americas as fertile ground for espionage. One reason for that is proximity to the United States, which is ultimately the main target for the Kremlin, along with Europe. Take the case of Gordon Lonsdale. He was notionally a Canadian businessman. He worked in London in the 1950s and 1960s. He turned out to be a Soviet illegal who was actually Conon Molody, and he was very, very successful. And his identity had been built up in Canada. That became much more difficult in the 80s, the 90s. Canada was basically shamed into strengthening its documentation, its passport security. And so Russian spies moved further south. And I think they found that higher levels of corruption in Central and South America made this easier to do. And if you go back and look at the case I mentioned earlier, the Cherkasov case, the would-be intern in The Hague, he boasted of getting a Brazilian official to give him citizenship documents, a birth certificate and a driver's license because he bribed him with a $400 necklace. What else? I think that if you're a Russian spy in an embassy, there's a lot of American targets around in the region. You can try and recruit or try and follow around. And that's American 
diplomats, American intelligence officers, American military officers, but also businessmen, commercial people. And let's say you're a Russian spy who recruits a defense contractor in San Francisco or somewhere like that. You don't want to meet them on American soil because the FBI is going to be watching you very closely and is going to be watching you cross the border. So why not get them to come to you and meet them in Mexico City? And that's a well-trodden path for American agents trying to meet their Russian handlers. But I think there is also quite a politically favorable environment for Russia in South America as well. What do you mean by that? Latin American countries have a very different relationship to Russia than the Americans and Europeans do. Let's just take the example of Brazil. Brazil's a founding member of the BRICS bloc, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Earlier this year, the group announced it would be adding Argentina. Brazil, Argentina, these other countries have very good economic relations with Russia. They rely on Russian fertilizer, for example. And ultimately, these governments are quite pro-Russian. If we look at the comments made by Brazil's President Lula da Silva, you know, he has basically taken a pro-Russian line on the invasion of Ukraine. He has said Zelensky was equally responsible for the invasion. He has encouraged a ceasefire that would favor the Russians. He's not someone who's going to be putting pressure on the Russians. And if you look at the Cherkasov case, the Brazilians have refused to extradite him. If you think about the intelligence agencies in these countries, Brazil, Argentina, they're reasonably unprofessional. They're very politicized. Their senior officers change over every time there's a change in government. These are not like the CIA or MI6 or European intelligence services. And so they are not going to be told by their governments to go pick a fight with the Russians. So if you're the SVR or the GRU, you're going to be able to get away with quite a lot in Argentina and Brazil, which probably includes stealing passports, stealing documents, bribing officials, following Americans around. It's a permissive environment. And in such a permissive environment, is there anything that Western nations can do to clamp down on this kind of spying? I think that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has probably made something of a difference. It has been so egregious. I think there has been some cooperation between Western intelligence agencies and their South American counterparts. We see that Brazil's police service, for instance, passed on some of the electronic equipment used by Cherkasov to the Americans. So clearly there's cooperation going on. But this challenge ultimately is probably going to grow. Last year, there were upwards of 600 intelligence officers expelled from Russian embassies in Europe. That's an absolutely enormous figure. My understanding is that some of these are now turning up in Latin America. And if you have hundreds of new intelligence officers turning up in Havana, in Sao Paulo, in Brasilia, in Buenos Aires, this is going to pose a challenge even for the most enthusiastic local security service. It cannot follow them all. It cannot track them all. Latin America is always going to be a hotbed of Russian espionage. Shashank, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me again. Hey, me again on this. Our new subscription plan, Economist Podcasts Plus, launches next month. These weekday episodes of The Intelligence will remain free, but to get all of our other shows and limited-run series, including Boss Class, a new one on how to be a better manager, and a nice, long, kickback weekend edition of The Intelligence, you're gonna need to sign up. But do it quick. Until October 17th, you can get a year's subscription for just about two bucks or pounds or euros a month. Lock in all that sweet, sweet audio content right now by clicking the link in the show notes.
When he was in Mexico in the late 1950s, Fernando Botero thought he would draw a mandolin, which was lying on the table. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. And when he came to draw the sound hole, he made it very tiny, and he was intrigued by the effect that had. It suddenly made the mandolin swell up with its own importance, and he found that if he put other objects around it, he could make them swell up too by various means. In this strange way, with the pleasure it gave him to have suddenly changed his proportions like that, his own style of painting, which was called Botarismo, was born. It was one that completely confounded critics. They looked at these pictures of flabby, giant-sized people and thought, who on earth needs such art these days? They were rather scandalized, both men and women, by the way Botero presented them. But he was very sure what he was doing. He was not just painting fat people. And he wasn't making fun of them, although he did sometimes satirize the generals and dictators who were running or rather ruining his own home continent of Latin America and his country of Colombia. Instead, he said what he was doing was painting volumes. That is, he was giving humans their due weight and importance by doing this. And he really believed strictly in this. His subjects were mostly fairly poor people whom he remembered from growing up in the town of Medellin in Colombia. And the people he drew and painted were carnival performers, bullfighters, peasants, people haunting bars, bourgeois couples walking the dog or embracing or just sitting with their families. Ordinary life as he'd seen it. This was life in all its fullness, and he found that his human characters gained in majesty and magnificence when he painted them that way. Perhaps it came from the pleasure he himself took in drawing and painting. He'd done it ever since he was a child, and he'd sold his paintings to help supplement his mother's earnings. His mother had been left a widow when her husband died suddenly and had three children to bring up. He had very little training, though, in drawing or painting. He'd actually gone to matador school instead. Never actually got into the ring with a bull, but had had rather an unfortunate encounter with one. He still stayed two years in the school. He went off to Europe in the 1950s, and there he was absolutely astounded by the art that he saw. He was bowled over by the sight of Piero della Francesca, Giotto, Uccello, Italian painters of the Quattrocento, who had actually managed to get the sense of volume in people's robes and limbs. They had got a sense of weight and consequence in their subjects, which was exactly what he was to be so inspired by. Quite a few of his paintings are actually spoofs, if you like, of famous old master paintings of Europe, such as Mona Lisa, 
He became notorious in New York for painting a picture called Mona Lisa at age 12, which was the one he exhibited in the Museum of Modern Art. He had an extremely serious and dedicated attitude to his work. He would work for 10 hours a day well into his 80s, and he felt more and more confident as his work sold and as he became more and more in demand in his own status as an artist, which meant that he shouldn't just deal with what he called the ordinary subjects of art, but he should also take on dark and serious themes. He did a whole series in the 1990s when drug violence was engulfing Colombia, which was really influenced both by Picasso in Guernica and by Goya with his disasters of war. He took on even more serious themes. He did uh, Stations of the Cross too, where Jesus is still portrayed in this plump Botero style, but somehow it makes him all the more vulnerable and tormented. And most famously, most movingly, he did a whole series of paintings of the American torture of Iraqi prisoners at Abu Ghraib camp in 2003. As soon as he read the news story, Botero decided that this had to be painted. And so he produced around a hundred paintings and drawings, and in them the prisoners are naked, contorted, hooded. As you look at these paintings, it is the sheer humanity and vulnerability of the prisoners that is illustrated there, and the fact that they are also rather plump in Botero's style does not matter and does not register at all. Anne Rowe on Fernando Botero, who's died aged 91. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producer is Rory Galloway, and our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alizé Jean-Baptiste, Kevin Kaners, and Sarah Larniuk, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane, with extra production help this week from Maggie Kadifa and Benji Guy. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.